What's interesting about this picture? Can y'all see it? Everybody see it okay? What's on the left side? Yeah, all right. Anybody know what mountain that is? I don't, so if you do that, that would be amazing if you do. That's just off, that's just online. Yeah, yeah. So you got a mountain on the left. What's on the right? Anybody recognize that? Yeah, Minecraft. Anybody's, anybody play Minecraft? Anybody have kids or grandkids that play Minecraft? Heard of it before you? Yeah. Minecraft. What is Minecraft? Those of you who know. <laughs> okay. A series of annoying sounds, all right. They build things. That's they, they build things, okay. So what, what do they do to, how do they build they things? things and they mine things and then they use those mined things to craft things hence the name minecraft yeah is minecraft real well that we could go down a rabbit hole with what does it mean to be real but yeah in the sense that does it is it you know can you actually get into the game physically and get into them and and go mine this no it's 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 a game is, is this mountain on the left real not on that picture yeah it's not actually neither of these are real right <laughs> These are just representation. This is just a representation of the game. This is representation of this mountain. Neither one of these are actual things. They just represent them. And it's it's important to to, to recognize that um, even our language that this is a real mountain, right? When we say this is a real mountain, well, no, it's it's a representation. It's a pixelated representation of a real mountain, but it it is not itself a real mountain. And we think, oh, that's kind of trivial. We understand that. We know that's not actually the mountain. That's not what I mean when I say that's a real mountain. We get that. But if you were born with an iPhone in your hand, if you were born with a digital device in your hand, and you're native to the culture around us where we live in the information age, and we have uh, data thrown at us all the time, and we have screens in front of us 24-7, if you don't know anything different, sometimes that line gets blurred. And it's hard to delineate between what is actually real and what is just a representation. And that's what we want to explore today. Um, we want to give you guys, or the, in the book, um, the, the book introduces three um, aspects to, that, that I think touch on this. Uh, first, we're going to look at learning to think. Second, we're going to look at learning to speak. And third, we're going to look at learning to grow. And they all center around this idea of how do we get kids, our friends, next generation, anyone who doesn't have a, a worldview, uh, like you know, a, a Christian worldview, how do we get them to think in this world? How do we get them to leave those things behind that are not real and move on to the things that are real? How do we help people navigate um, the... Uh, the, the the unreal and and get out into the real and I think it starts with with recognizing worldview we talked about worldview last summer a little bit about worldview what is what is worldview what is a worldview you can take that a couple different ways I think of it as like it's the perspective the way that you see things the way that you see and interpret things around you yeah, that's exactly right. It's how you, I mean, it, it, most basic, it's how you view the world. It's the lenses through which you see things. It, it's how you answer the big questions of life. Who am I? What is really real? What, is, what, is, uh, what happens after we die? 
Um, is there good or bad? How do I know what's good or bad? Those questions. And uh, as believers, our worldview is anchored in the reality of God and what He says, right? His, His revelation to us. And we discussed that last year. But how do we get a worldview? How do we help someone shape a worldview? Well, you guys who are parents or have raised kids before, you, you do that. You do, you're doing that or you have done that. Um, you, shaping a worldview happens in, in this order. First, it, it's very much like training. First, somebody watches, right? So your kids watch you, your students watch you, your, you know, the, the young folks around church watch you. Right? And they see how you act, they see how you talk, they see how you behave, they see uh, what you think, they listen to you, they hear you, they just, they observe. And then they begin to experience those things as you invite them in. Hey, help me out with this, you know? Or you, you have those teachable moments, you speak with them and teach them and, 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 and have those conversations, right? They begin to experience, they start to kind of do it themselves, but you're right there beside them. And then, as they continue, ideally, hopefully, they begin to understand those underlying principles and those underlying concepts. Why do we not hit my sister, right? Even though I really want to and she's really annoying, right? Why don't I take out my anger with violence, right? Why don't I cheat? Why don't I lie, you know? Why, why do I need to be home by 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock or whatever your curfew is, right? You start understanding those principles, right? And then... Hopefully, as that relationship continues and as that worldview uh, continues to develop, they begin to admire those principles that are admirable, right? Those virtues, those good principles. And eventually, they adopt them on their own, right? So the shaping of a worldview takes time, right? It takes time. You're not born knowing everything. You're not born understanding everything. You don't die understanding everything, but along the way you grow and you develop a worldview. Uh, parents, teachers, ministers, you guys are just one stop along the way uh, to the path of wisdom, right? So everybody, you know the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, right? That's the idea. Shaping worldview, you go through these processes, processes, but it takes culture, it takes everyone, right? Um, this is our verse for tonight. Uh, you guys are probably very familiar with it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right now, is that hard, cold, truth, fact always going to happen? No, not always. But the idea is if you never train a child, you never train the next generation, you never make an attempt, you never try to shape a worldview, right, then you can't be surprised when later on, you know, Kids don't turn out like you think, right? But the idea is, is that it takes community, and that's what we're going to look at today. Wisdom in community. Learning to think, learning to process important ideas, learning to speak. Uh, this is the section in the book called uh, Learning or Being Alone Together, I think is what the title of the chapter is, Being Alone Together. Uh, this is simply paying attention to others, right? Getting away from your screen, looking out in the world, getting off Minecraft, and go climb a mountain, right? So paying attention to others, getting into reality, and then finally, learning to grow, leaving adolescence behind. And uh, Owen's going to talk about that. All right, first one. The book talks about why it's difficult for kids to think. 
And first things first, thinking is difficult. Uh, Carl Jung, the uh, famous, uh, I don't know where he was from, he's German, French, anyway. Uh, <laughs> do I? Do you, oh, you look like you knew. All right, bonus points if you know. Um, the psychologist said, uh, thinking is difficult, that's why everyone judges. Carl Jung? Yeah, Carl Jung. Yeah, Carl Jung, yeah. Uh, thinking is difficult. Jung. That's why most people judge. He's Swiss. He's Swiss. Thank you, Swiss. And it is, right? How, if, if, you, how, if, if you've got a job where you have to put a lot of mental effort into it, at the end of the day, even though you've done nothing physical, you're exhausted, right? I'm an introvert, and I got to stand in front of, you know, kids all day long and not only, you know, try to teach them, uh, but also evaluate and assess their knowledge and understanding and try to keep them under control, right? At three o'clock, I shut down. As soon as the bell rings, I gotta go home and just go to my quiet place and just, I need silence, you know? Uh, because it's, ex it's mentally exhausting for me to do that. I haven't done anything physical other than stand all day, which is totally fine, but I'm exhausted. Thinking is difficult, right? And that's one reason that, that most people struggle to think. But one, one reason kids and young folks tend to struggle is because they conflate feeling with thinking. And we see it in the, just the language that we use. Ah, I feel like that's not right, right? Or I don't feel like I agree with you, right? We use the word feel instead of think because we live in, when you're young, you're full of emotion, you're full of, uh, you know, you get your, um, uh, you know, you're very passionate about stuff, you're easily excited. But if we never move on from feeling to thinking, we're always gonna struggle to think. Um, we live in a very sensational world, right? What gets, the, what gets the news, what gets the attention? The things that make you angry, the things that, that create moral outrage, right? Feelings, we're driven by feelings. And if we can teach people to stop, think through it, then some of that gets mitigated, right? Uh, thinking is difficult, being entertained is easy. The word amused literally means to not think, to not think. If you're being amused, you're not thinking. We have an overabundance of distraction. Think of all the ways that you can be distracted. Even right now, how can you be distracted? I was just wondering why the heart was biting a paisley coaster. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Supposed to be the brain. But yeah. <laughs> so there you go. I introduced distraction. That's my bad. Oh, my goodness. Thank you about what you're doing. Carl Jung, I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this. But uh -huh. The reason thinking is so difficult and the reason we often outsource it, it's necessary to outsource it, which is, by the way, his whole... Um, evidence for the, for the necessity of free speech is because we ha we have to outsource our thinking to other people to let them give us feedback is that to really think something through you have to be able to play both sides of an issue in your head and you have to be able to uh, basically conduct this argument in your head back and forth and uh, it's extremely difficult. And like I said, that's why free speech is so important because 
oftentimes we do think with our mouth open because it's easier. It's easier to outsource that oppositional opinion to other people and see what they say. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it's the whole idea of thinking, like thinking like in the real sense, like uh, deep thinking and, and uh, you know, even like I struggle to find words right now, but that, that, that thinking that you would associate with the brightest minds of our time, extremely difficult because you're having to basically play all sides of an issue in your head, take on multiple personas, and conduct this argument without requiring any outside help. Yeah, and, and, and that is, is extremely time-consuming. Yeah. You know, it ta- not only does it take energy, it takes time. And what do we lack now with everything being thrown at us and, and all the things we're trying to be involved in is time, right? Sometimes we just don't take the time to sit down and, and wrestle through big ideas. And that's one reason it's, it's difficult for kids to think, right? Um, sometimes they just need time. What is that, that free play? I forget the, what organization promotes the, the kids, free range kids, free I think. Range. Free range kids, yeah. <laughs> Talk about just the, the, the importance of just free play. Just getting out there, engaging with others, no structure, just go explore, right? And that's important, that's very important. Um, we have an over, uh, overabundance of distraction and a life of continual amusement is a life without wisdom because you have never wrestled with any, any ideas. If you're constantly being entertained, right, you're never thinking. And if you're never thinking, you're never wrestling with those ideas and never coming to wisdom. Um, they say in the book, kids who can't think clearly in the information age, which we talked about last week, are destined to be deceived. And I don't know how many times I, as a teacher, have, have helped my kids navigate through uh, you know, online uh, uh, either websites or struggles or forms. And you as parents, I'm sure, have done the same. They have questions. And I mean, you can easily, there are people out there that want to deceive, uh, deceive kids. And uh, if we don't teach them to think clearly, then they're destined to just be deceived all the time. All right. Um, so I, I heard this quote one time, and I wish I could attribute it to a person, but a certain person, but I cannot think of who said it. But I said, a man should be able to do three things. Entertain himself, entertain others, and entertain ideas. How many of you have heard the phrase, I'm bored? Mom, I'm bored. Dad, I'm bored. Usually it's mom, I'm bored. How many of you ever said, oh, man, I'm bored? I'm bored. Once. <laughs> and why, why only once? <laughs> That's right. That's right. A life lesson. Give you something to do, right? I give you something to do. <laughs> because, because why? There's always something to do right there's always something to do it may not be what you want to do but there's always something to do boredom in kids is normal it's a sign of immaturity you know they they don't they haven't come to the realization there's a lot of stuff that could be done they could be doing a lot of stuff i'd argue that boredom in adults 
is maybe a sign of unintelligence, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Hey, listen, I, the, the mirror is pointed at me too, right? But if you, if, you find, if you find it difficult to find things to keep yourself entertained, right? Whether reading a book or going to, working on some, working on a project, you know, improving a skill of yours, right? If you just can't think of anything possible to do, you have just, I think you just, you've just become unobservant and unaware and you stop paying attention, right? So kids, we expect that, right? I'm bored because they don't know what they could do. They, don't, they, have, they haven't learned yet how to, how to observe the world. But like to me, I could be standing in the woods and staring at a tree and be completely amused Asking questions about it, right? Explain, you know, a, deep thinking, right? Do you like noise when you fall? <laughs> <laughs> <Do> you... <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Tree. <laughs> yeah. But you should be able to entertain. Th talk about thinking. You should be able to entertain yourself. <laughs> entertain others is a little, little different. Josh is good at that. Josh is good at that. That, that was not a Church of Christ thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> the question is, do they have any clothes on? That's true. Well, it seems to be two guys, too, so we won't, we won't go there. Entertain others. What does it mean to entertain others? So uh, you mentioned Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson in his book, 12 Rules for Life, um, one of the chapters is on assuming that someone you're talking to has something you can learn, right? Assuming that, that somebody else has some, that, that you don't know everything and that you can learn something from someone else, right? Um, people love to talk about themselves, love to talk about what they know, right? So having a, being able to have a conversation with somebody else is an important skill to being an, an adult. Um, Speaking of humor and entertaining, right? Um, it's my belief that you need to have some level of intelligence to be humor, humorous, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't take a lot. <laughs> there may be exceptions. We find him But think about it. Some of the, the, the best humor, right? So real, like humor that makes you think, connects ideas that don't seem connected. Right? Um, being able to entertain someone else is a sign, I think, of intelligence, right? Because you know people, right? You've observed, you've stepped out of your own little devices and you're working with somebody else. You're sharing ideas, you're having an experience. And then finally, entertain ideas. Um, nobody knows it all. I surely don't know everything, right? There's a lot in this world to learn. And there's a lot that, uh, I have changed my mind about over the years as I've learned more and I've matured, right? Um, to be able to entertain ideas that are different than yours is a sign of intelligence, sign of maturity, right? So teaching, teaching kids to, listen, you can be bored, I give you something to do, but there's always something you could be doing. You know, um, being able to interact with others meaningfully and be able to think deeply about ideas, those are important aspects. All right, learning to think. How do we go from struggling to think to learning to think? Most of you are pretty straightforward. Number one, you got to understand your worldview, right? Um, you have to create or cultivate an environment where questions can be asked. This is really important in church. 
um, especially since this is kind of the, the culture that we're trying to uh, create here. It's really important in church. This should be an environment where questions are encouraged, where it's okay to say, hey, listen, I don't know about that. Or, man, you know, wh why does it say this? Or why do we do this? You know, um, I, this is a pet peeve of mine. It, it, you may be fine with it, but I struggle. I've always struggled with the idea that, that the Bible says it and that's it right there's a lot about the bible that i don't understand and those times those parts where i don't understand i think okay well i'm just gonna have faith the bible says it and i'll work through it and, and we'll figure it out and and i'm gonna i'm gonna do it because that's what it says and there's a lot of times where I'm, where with deeper study you're like okay it says this you know but how do i how do i apply that now you know um, so questions, I, I think a, an environment where questions are expected and encouraged is important, especially important in, in any kind of education. Um, you want kids to be excited about learning and excited about asking questions. It's how you learn. Um, and when they're shut down, they're going to find answers somewhere, right? So what better place than in a, in, in a community that has a worldview that says, all right, God is real and all truth comes in him comes from him so let's work through this together um, i tell my students i don't know is a wonderful answer but only if it is followed up with let's find out right i don't think anybody should remain in ignorance there's some things that, that you may not know even after studying but at least attempt so create an environment where that that encourages questions uh talking about feelings temper passion with reason right so uh Talk about kids. Kids do what adults do. They want to do what the adults do. They want to be big grown-ups. And so if you're always flying off the handle, what's that going to teach them? Fly off the handle. So that makes sense. Temper it with reason. Sometimes, sometimes you need to just get the point across, and sometimes you need to take time to kind of, you know, work through the situation. Um, teach teach uh, discernment. Um, <laughs> I wrote this, and I don't know if this is... Right? Maybe, maybe I need to flesh it out some more. Gullibility is an attempt to act out a constructed identity of understanding. You, you pretend that you understand. You think that you understand, but you really don't. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounded good in my head. Um, there is such thing as expert fallacy, right? So just because some, someone with a degree, someone of importance says something, doesn't mean that it's necessarily right, right? Um, think of yeah. Mark Twain when he said, never argue with a fool because they'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's brilliant. Never argue with a fool because they'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Mark Twain. I like that. But that's right. Right? Practice discernment. Know, uh, know what's good information and bad information and discern between the two. Uh, this, one's, this one's difficult for me because I'm pretty closed off. But be appropriately vulnerable. Right. Um, one of the trust uh, or a couple, uh, a couple of things that kill trust is hypocrisy and immorality, especially in the church. Kids see us acting one way and then preaching at them something different and telling them, hey, listen, you need to be like this when I'm off doing the opposite. Right. They see that and that just breaks down trust right there. Right. They're going to go elsewhere to find answers. Right. And if we are caught up in a life of sin, right, if we struggle with that, be vulnerable, right? So open up. Let 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 uh, ki kids kids are naturally vulnerable, um, and so when they see us opening up, they see okay, 
they're human beings. They see adults, they're human beings. All right, right? They have some things together, right? They know a lot of good stuff, but they're also human, right? They, it's okay to be struggling through something, trying to get better, right? It's not okay staying there, but struggling through something, that's okay, that's normal. You got doubts, you got fears, sure. And we put appropriately, because there are some things that are more appropriate to talk with 18-year-olds about and 10-year-olds about than six-year-olds about in the range. So be appropriately vulnerable. I tell my kids at school, uh, I'm, I'm an open book. I really, they can ask me any question and I'll answer them appro appropriately, but I don't shy away from, from questions because that's the only way that we learn. That's the only way we get to know each other. And what I have found over the past few years that I've been, and I've only been teaching like four years, five years, so it's not a lot. But over those years, what I have found is that me being like that opens them up and our classes are better, our discussions are better. They're willing to ask questions because they know I'm gonna give them an honest answer. I'm not just gonna give them a, you know, just a, some cliche you know, answer, right? And we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about real stuff. And that doesn't mean you do it all the time, but when, when it is appropriate, be vulnerable. That builds trust. Um, assume responsibility ourselves and teach responsibility. You wanna learn to think, you gotta take ownership of something. Right. If, if something is yours, you have to think through how to take care of it um, and how to uh, sustain it. Be a think for yourself. For, and then finally, uh, teach that failure is not failure. Failure is an opportunity to learn. All right. Um, so some key elements about thinking questions on thinking. Most of this is just from the book. Right. Uh, just kind of a reminder of what's in the book. All right. Next section real quick. Being alone together. All right. This has to do with screen time. Being alone together. Uh, anybody familiar with this scene right here? Laying in bed with your spouse, talking with everybody, communicating with everybody except your spouse. Nobody, just me? Okay, all right. <coughs> so uh, confession time. Um, I, maybe some of you, kind of this is your routine in the morning, but my alarm goes off, side of the bed, this is my alarm. I don't have an alarm clock, used to, it's my alarm. Alarm goes off, first thing that I do is I grab my phone. My feet haven't hit the ground yet and I grab my phone. I turn my alarm off. And then what do I do? Snooze it and light back. <laughs> Some days, only if I have to work out the next day, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, that's third. I read my Bible, right? So alarm goes off. And I teach my kids, all right, open the Bible app before you open anything else. And so I do it myself, open the Bible app. I may just read the verse of the day. I may continue reading something I was reading. A few minutes, I read my Bible. Then I check my emails. And I check the news. And I check social media. Play the Wordle for the day. <laughs> and then I lean over and I kiss my wife. And it's in that order. The first 15 minutes of my day are on this right here. No interpersonal you know, interaction, right? I don't talk to anybody real. It's all right here. So I'm familiar with that. Sherry Turkle says, not that long ago, we were trying to figure out how we could keep our computers busy, right? How can we make these computers do more and more and more? Now they keep us busy, right? <clears throat> how many of you got a schedule on your phone and you get notifications and alerts and you know, your, your phone runs your life, you know? And there's benefits to it, right? You can say organize, keep in contact with people. But the point is, have we trained ourselves to be alone with other people, alone together? 
right? The altar calls them glowing rectangles. That was pretty good. The what? The altar calls them glowing rectangles. Glowing rectangles, that's yeah, right. Glowing rectangles. That's right. I've definitely seen that with teenagers. Mm -hmm. I, I've even watched my own children do that. It's like we'll be out somewhere, and if they have to stand and wait mm -hmm. they'll pull their phone out. They want to be seen looking on their phone. Yep. They wouldn't want to just be seen standing there, you know, like this. It's it's that. Why would you stand like that? They don't, <laughs> they don't, they don't know how to wait, though. They don't. They yeah. So they look on there. They way out of line. They've seen, been waited in line in their lives. Looking at it because I guess it's embarrassing for them to look like. We should bring back Ticketmaster. Do. <laughs> they don't. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the art of communication, entertaining others, right? Being able to, to enjoy each other's company. Um, it's, it's a difference in um, experiencing, right, reality and documenting it, right, or alternative reality, right? <laughs> experiencing the moment versus, you know, documenting the moment. Um, so, yeah, you guys have seen these scenes. It's exactly what you're talking about, right? You're with your friends. You're hanging out. You could be doing anything in the world and... You're in your own little virtual world, right? The experience that I've had, so I taught at the university for 30 years, so you know how that mm -hmm. evolved. And um, when when I first started teaching, you'd have to walk in and give them five or 10 minutes, and then you'd say, okay, let's start class, because they were just going at visiting and talking. And then the last couple of semesters, you walk in, you could hear a pin drop because everybody's on their own phone, nobody's speaking. One day I made them put their phones up and introduce themselves to the person sitting next to them. Mm -hmm. I said, you have no idea who's in this <laughs> class. Let's find out. Probably mortified half of them, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> I have so to speak to was, somebody? <laughs> you know, this is an engineering class. And they were very, of the poor spelling introverts anyway. And it was, it was kind of an interesting question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, the, and it's brilliant on the, the social medias, but that's how they communicate now is through Snapchat oh. or mm -hmm. whatever else they're on. Like, that is how they talk. They don't speak with each other. They don't yeah. even call each other on the phone. No. That's weird. No, it, you know. There was an uh, article this week. I can look it up, I guess. But it was, from what I remember, from a whatever news is worth now, a, a reputable publication that said that uh, Gen Z considers a voice phone call aggressive. Hmm. They actually are scared well, of talking to the point was like in a work environment or something, they didn't, they, they thought it was aggressive for you to call them instead of sending them an email or a text. Our next yeah. war is gonna go poorly. They, they don't like that though. Like in yeah. the office, I have parents call to make their appointment because they say, and, and the mom might say, is there any way you could text him and, and make his appointment through that way? And I'm like, no, you know, he needs to be able to call up here and talk to me and make an appointment, but they're scared to. They're scared to have a conversation with I don't the know if it's scared office. to, other than, uh, like I said, they interpret it as aggression. Like it's it, kind of aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, I'll see if I can find it. But that was from this week. 
Well, I had, uh, I've had several conversations with, with students about why, why online, what, what would happen if you just, you know, you lost your phone or you just deleted the, the app, well, the social media apps, yeah, just, you got, you got to just get rid of it and have to actually interface. And just the, the, the horror on their faces. Like, I had one student tell me one time, I, I couldn't do that. Like, that's my life. And I thought, no, you don't mean that. And she's like, no, really, that's like everything that I do and everything that my friends do. This is the only way I have any connection with anybody else. And as we were talking, it started kind of, it, it started clicking with her. And she realized, wait a minute, she realized what she was saying, you know. And while she didn't mean, you know, I would die, it literally die if Small this is gone. But like, this is like everything. And, and, and it, it, it hit me. I thought, okay, that's, that's a foreign concept to me. Right. This is my life here, you know, with other people. And I stay in contact, you know, partly through this. But for them, like this really is everything. This is what they know. This is how they communicate. Um, they don't know anything different. And, you know, good or bad, it's just it, it's the way it is. So how do how do we teach them to stay safe? How do we teach them to um, be wise and discerning as they, you know, use this because they're going to use it. You know, they're going to use it. Brooke has kids um, put their phone up now at mm -hmm. night, like put it in the kitchen, the white phone. It was way better for them. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but that's huge. Yeah, nighttime, uh, uh, disconnecting, having a, having a moment to disconnect. All right. Reasons that uh, we struggle to be alone together. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we no longer have friends. How many, how many friends do you have on uh, Facebook? How, do, how many friends do you have on, on uh, different social media apps, right? How many friends, right? All, oh yeah, big, oh, big goose egg for Nathan, I'm sorry. We love you, we love you, we're glad you're here. Friend, friends are no longer friends, friends are followers, right? You're no longer a friend, you're an influencer, right? Friends are followers. Um, relationships online are not relationships, but there, there's this, this idea that maybe they are, maybe there's something to it, right? Um, you know, how many followers do you have? How many likes do you get? You know, um, the social media experience versus real life experience, right? Which is more real? Well, in a lot of folks' minds, they're the same. Right? Sharing experience in real life versus sharing experience online are the same. Um, we've given up real friendships, real um, relationships for just, you know, likes, digits, right? Uh, zeros and ones. Um, online, there's no vulnerability because you cultivate your own world, right? Um, you used to go online and show people about yourself, who you are, right? Hey, I'm expressing myself online. This is the, this is the music I like. This is, you know, this is uh, the, the food I like. Now you go online to, to explore alternative identities. You be who you want to be online. You cultivate your own identity online, right? So um, we'll, uh, we'll talk about, well, here, that leaves, we'll skip to this. We'll, it, it leaves a digital footprint. Everything you do online stays online, right? It's online somewhere. Um, and your employers, 
or potential employers, uh, we tell the kids this, potential employers, um, colleges, universities, right? They're looking at your social media now, right? Um, and not only those folks, but people who want to do you harm are looking at your social media, looking at what you post online. Um, and so you, you tend, folks tend to cultivate just a different persona online. And when you do that, there's no vulnerable, there's no risk. There's no risk. Relationships online have no risk. Right, so what happens when you say something that somebody else doesn't like and they stop following you? Well, no big deal. They weren't my friend anyway, right? And so kids are, are, are learning now that, um, well, they're not learning. When, when, when you trade real relationships and interpersonal skills with online followers and friends, kids are not learning eye contact. They're not learning soft skills, like how to introduce yourself. Um, they are not learning um, uh, body language, right? And nonverbal communication, right? Um, when, you, when you only have people's words online, let's say you're on Twitter and you've only got what they say, you reduce that person to just a series of comments, right? You forget that that's a person behind that um, identity. And so what do you do? You dehumanize. Right? It's easy to become uh, very hateful and bitter and re resenting and, and dismissive of somebody else when you would never do that face to face, right? Because it's easy to look at what's online as, ah, it's not a real person, right? Um, everything, devices, mediate experiences, conversations, relationships. Um, from, I think here's a stat from 2004 to 2009, the average, the daily average screen time rose 90 minutes. Today, the average screen time, and this isn't just, uh, this isn't just phones, but computers, all the devices in front of just any kind of screen. And so, and this, this includes work as well, right? But the average today is 10 hours a day in front of a screen. Daily average, 10 hours in front of a screen. Now, if you're not, yeah. You're talking about the loss of soft skill. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be brilliant when it comes to computer work, but if you can't get along with your coworkers, <laughs> if you don't know how to go find leads, you know, if you don't know how to, to um, interact with customers, do it. Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. <laughs> Little bit of yeah. Pretty yeah. smart guy. Pretty smart guy. Technically savvy. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, soft skills are huge. People skills. <laughs> and you don't you don't learn your you don't learn those skills interacting online with people. You know? That may change what we feel like if those people get into more authority, it will change what becomes the accepted norm of soft skills. There'll be a lot of frustrated people why those of us who are old are still in charge. That's right. Um, and yeah, and that's gonna that's gonna lead to some anxiety, bitterment, bitterness, resentment. Yeah. Um, because highly educated people have always been frustrated that they're highly educated folks who never finished college make four times as much money as they did. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been going on for fifty years. Yeah. Of my life, so it will be even more. Well, why can't I? I can do this. They can't even do this. They can't even turn on the computer. Yeah. I'm gonna push back for just here because I think, I know you said it and it really doesn't change uh, anything. It's just a different way of looking at it. The second bullet point: there's no vulnerability in your own created world. In a sense, I see 
more vulnerability, yeah. people that are more easily yeah, influenced. Yeah, yeah, easily influenced by whether or not they are accepted online, whether or not they do have, um, you know, whether or not that they do receive any sort of criticism or whatever. Now, there are definitely people that troll, that don't really care, they enjoy the fight, you know, the, the conflict or whatever, but those aren't, those aren't the majority. To the point that, you know, we've seen uh, tech platforms attempt to modify, um, or I guess, uh, what's the word, moderate, to keep uh, certain, like, the whole, remember the whole learn to code thing, when uh, the people, uh, well, the, the press, yeah, the, the, who was it, what started, the coal miners at first, <laughs> by talking about uh, they were going to, if you're going to close down the coal mines for the environment, why don't they learn to code? Yeah, they learned to code, the press, and then when the press started losing their job, people would say learn to code, and they were so offended by that, that literally that would get you kicked off of Twitter, just type and learn to code. It was, they were so fragile. Mm -hmm. that. So the idea that there's no vulnerability, uh, to, in a sense, it's it's kind of the opposite. That people are have opened themselves up to where they can't handle alternative viewpoints at all. See, I'll agree with that. That that, that we've become overly um, sensitive <clears throat> yeah. and unable to take criticism. But that's that's not that's not exactly what I mean right. by this. Yeah. yeah. But you're but you're right. Yeah. Like <laughs> if you spend all your time. You know, creating your own little identity online, right? You, yeah. you haven't actually done anything in life, right? You haven't, you haven't cultivated real relationships, yeah, right? I, but yeah, we have become very oversensitive. Yeah. So much cooler online. <laughs> so much cooler online. I thought that was not on what the author's point was on that particular part. I thought it was because you're basically curating an mm -hmm. image online, like, like you're saying, like, only these good photos of you, so I'm like, you know, I'm mean, yeah. taking a picture of my balls, butt, but it online. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not of myself, that's why I don't have one. That's why I don't have one. I don't post that. He can't see his own balls. Only the best. That's right. But yeah, that and that and that's that's the point. And and it is. Um, Part of, part of uh, you, you, you do need a thick skin uh, for sure online, but you need a thick skin in real life. I mean, you really do. All right, last thing here, boomerang habits. This is simple, you guys know it. Kids learn from their parents. So if you're, if you're always on your, your digital devices, if you are always getting stressed out, if you are, uh, you know, your feelings over emotion, or feelings over thinking, you know, your kids are gonna see that and they're gonna mimic your, mimic your habits, you know, so you guys know that. Um, all right, so what do you do? Two things the book touches on right here. Um, they call it the lies. So online lies, these are all I am, right? I am the center of my universe, right? I have my own personally tailored world. I do what I want when I want, right? It's a lie. Uh, second lie that, that, that uh, kids struggle through and we need to help them is I deserve to be happy. My happiness is the end all be all of all things. Um, the book points out that the number two reason for teen death, ages 10 to 24 is suicide, right? This right here, it's a dream, it's a lie. Right, I deserve to be happy, and if I don't get that, life's not worth living. Is that true, though? Even in our new culture, is that is that new?
Oh, this right here? No, no, these these aren't necessarily new. No. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, these these I mean these are these are age old. Yeah. But um but the, yeah, but they're worth they're worth pointing out, you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's 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 nothing what is it? Nothing new under the sun. But yeah, no. Yeah, these are struggles that everybody, you know, that that we have to these are lies that we tell ourselves. And, and, yeah. I think the deserves to be happy thing. It might be magnified a little bit in today's society because based on social media posts, people think that that's real life. That's real life. Yeah, look what they're doing. They're on the beach every week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and the, the fallacy is that happiness comes from the outside. Well, anyway. I'll go to a country song again. Yeah. <laughs> as John Condon sang that song 40 years ago, the girl down the street says her husband is neat and makes it sound so true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they get in your shoes. They work to get you down. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, those songs really do speak the truth. That I'm home miserable, but when I talk to the girl down the street, my husband comes home on Friday night, he's tired, kicks his shoes up, gets on the couch. I'm ready to go tell him he won't do anything. But she talks about, uh, you know, oh, my husband takes me dancing, partying, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not necessarily true, but I'm not going to tell you, I'm not, you know, my husband ain't great either. Yeah. He's <laughs> a John Connolly you know, in case y'all want to listen to you know, him. You know, <laughs> so I'm the center of my universe. I deserve to be happy. How about this one? I have to have choices. Have to have choices. We live in an on-demand world, but we are perpetually bored, right? We get done with one thing, move on. Before we even finished, I don't know any of my students in, in any of my classes have ever finished a song. They'll get through maybe a minute of the song, if that, and then they'll move to another song, and then to another song, and then to another song, and to another song. Right? How many of you sat there with Netflix or they would absolutely hated, hated? Hey, baby, AM radio. You recorded nothing. You just got what you got. What they gave you, and and you learned to like it. Right? You figured a way to like it. You figured out a way to be happy. Right? With with your limited choices, <laughs> um, we throw away things instead of repairing them. Right? We just go through one after another, streaming services, movies, music, right? It's all at our fingertips. Got to have all these choices, right? And just not content. How about this? I'm my own authority. Now that's, I mean, that goes back to the Garden of Eden right there. You know, I'm my own authority. So, illusion. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, the illusion of control that... Uh, I had, so I used to babysit when I was a teenager, and I had a little kid tell me one time that, uh, you know, and kids do, they say, well, when you grow up to be big like me, you know, you'll be able to do this, you know? And it's just that, that, I, that, that concept, you know, that, that, that thought that, you know, I am the center of my universe. I know it all. I am my own authority. I don't need anybody else tell me what to do. You know, I've got it. That last one, though, is not as new as we think. There was a time when one of the primary roles of teachers was to impart knowledge, mm -hmm. and that has changed. Yeah, that has. Uh, but we still need teachers to impart wisdom. Yes. Uh, or, or the interpretation of knowledge mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, other skills mm -hmm. that are beyond just the realm of knowledge. But the idea that uh, uh, we need somebody to teach us knowledge or to impart knowledge is 
not a big deal anymore. Yeah. In fact, it's, it's kind of the opposite. We all are very familiar with teaching ourselves things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, and by teachers is, is, is the wisdom. That's what we're, right. that we're getting. Yeah. So I need, I need info. I, I can Google whatever I want, right? I don't need you to tell me how to do it. I don't need, I don't need you to, you know, I can Google anything, world at my fingertips. I don't need anyone giving me advice. I don't need wisdom. I don't need somebody teaching me anything, right? When the reality is what? We need to put things in context, right? We need to have things put in context for us. We need to learn how they connect. We need to have uh, someone show us, you know, um, through uh, experience. Oh, no, experience. You know, a fool shows through experience um, what is uh, what will work and what is what is right and what is good. Um, you have all the info in the world, but if you have no one to help contextualize it and you have no one to show you to, to navigate the um, uh, between good and bad information. Um, then yeah, you'll just fall. I mean, you'll always, you'll always be confused. Um, so how do we help them? The, kid, uh, the book has uh, four, well, they list four things, but basically, how do we help them navigate the world where screens <coughs> rule? They say, practical way, limit screen time. Limit screen time. Um, be the teacher. So they give you four examples here. In the car, at the table, the bedroom, vacation. I'm glad uh, uh, Brooke, Josh, you guys mentioned a device-free zone, taking the phones at, at bedtime. But in the car, how many of you used to drive around the car, have to look out the window, read a book, get car sick in the back, you know? Um, I used to, like, I drove a lot for, for a previous job, and I remember having Rand McNally, you know, roadmaps, you know, in my car, right? So I had to stop on the side of the road and look at the map and figure out where I'm going, then go and have GPS, you know? But tech-free, in, in the car, you've got a tech-free audience, or you, you can have a tech-free audience, right? Enjoy that time, right? Kids should know how to get home, right? Or at least be familiar with their surroundings and their neighborhood and as they're driving. Some people are not spatially aware. And that's true, that's true. But you've got a great opportunity, you've got a captive audience in your car. Right? You got a captive audience in your car. So utilize that time, build relationships, uh, ask questions, talk, sing, whatever you do, build that time. Around the table, uh, this is huge for me. No, no devices at the, at the dinner table. Right? First of all, have dinner together, but, you know, but if, if you do, no devices. Spend that time un uninterrupted communication. How's your day? You know, talk about this. My, my mom was huge on this, right? No toys at the dinner table. You know, you, that was sacred time, you know? And I think that's kind of a lost, uh, that the, the table dinner time is kind of a lost art here, or a lost um, uh, she doesn't time. She does use enough salt. <laughs> but but this, is, this is crucial time. Uh, the bedroom, huge, huge. Um, I, like I said, I'll admit, this is my alarm, right? This is my alarm, um, but you go to bed, right? So sleep health. If, if for anything, nothing else, just getting better sleep, right? When you're on here, you're on social media, you're getting what? You're getting worked up, you're getting stressed, you're getting anxious, right? You're trying to reply to emails, and then you try to go to bed, and your mind's going a, a mile a minute, right? So take it out. Take it outside the bedroom. Uh, no TVs in the bedroom, right? No screens in the bedroom. Um, with a, a set a curfew, right? Set a curfew. Um, 
And, and not, just, not just those, but also if we talk about, you know, teenagers, think of all the, the temptations there that come with world at your fingertips, isolated in the dark in your room, right? So set a curfew, no devices, and then on vacation, man, build those relationships, right? Kind of limit, limit screen time. That's, that's, their main, that, that's their main push. How do you fight back against this right here? Well, you just eliminate it, right? Or limit it, right? Um, so that's, that's that, learning to speak. How do we enjoy each other's company? How do we learn to be together? Um, we cut back on the devices. Um, I'll read this real quick, and then I'm gonna turn it over to Owen. This is from page 127 in this section here in the book. He says, remember to use these device-free times wisely. Develop a list of questions for your kids that will help you dive into their beliefs, their hopes, their dreams, their disappointments, and aspirations. Remember, we are creating worldviews, right? We are helping them develop worldviews. Bring up a hot topic from the news that day or tell a story from your childhood, right? They're going to want to know what's going on. They're curious about the world around them. Why not you be the mediator of that information, right? Help them work through it instead of hearing it from online. Laugh together, think together, imagine together, demand eye contact, and dig deeper than yes, no, and I don't know discussions. Initially, it will be hard for both your kids and us, but it'll be worth it. How do we help the next generation and those around us uh, fight back against this and learn to be together? You gotta spend time. You gotta spend time and they can't be uh, interrupted by these. All right, I'm gonna shut up now and turn it over to Owen. All right. Hello. If you know the second part to this little ditty, please finish it. I don't want to grow up. Yes. Yeah, Toys R Us is my favorite place back in the 80s. As I became a parent or older, I guess Toys R Us was gone by the time my kid, my first child was born. But, you know, that's an expensive place. Or it was. Rest in peace, giraffe. Um, I don't want to grow up. Perpetual adolescence. Uh, For the first time in human history, The young have become a model of emulation for the older population, rather than the other way around. Culturally speaking, be that in terms of dress codes, mentality, lifestyles, and marketing. The world that we live in is astonishingly useful and in many respects, infantile. All right, so Mr. Harrison pointed out something very important. Now. What is this picture from? Anybody know? Peter Pan. What's the gist of the story with Peter Pan? He doesn't grow up. And? Well, yeah, I mean, he's the... He's, yes, okay, uh, he's a perpetual child. And where is he from? Neverland. And in Neverland, the adults are... Who are they? The pirates led by the most infamous Captain Hook, right? And so in the story, we have the uh, Wendy and her brothers. What happens to them? 
kidnapped. Yeah, they're they're taken, right? And they're taken to Neverland, right? And and in the story, we have some very interesting, uh, very interesting situations. Now, you can just take this as a story about uh, these children who go on an adventure to Neverland. You know, the Disney movie. It's really great. It's a classic. Um, it was ri- written originally as a play, I believe, right? Um, uh, and then it was, there's several versions. Uh, there's a really kind of a dark tone to Peter Pan if you pay attention. Okay, so Peter Pan, um, he is uh, obviously the, I guess, the chief boy. He's not human. Right, he's got something. He's pointy ears. That's there's an indicator there that he's not really human. And um, the the story goes that if you're a child, right, a child that falls out of their pram, which is uh, English, the Queen's English for cradle, I guess. Um, stroller. Okay, I didn't know that. No, pram was. You were just there, yeah. So okay, so if they fall out. Yes, yes. Um, so, so you follow the pram, you got seven days. If you don't get found within seven days, Peter Pan comes and picks you up and takes you to Neverland. And so he has these young, young kids who, who are there, and they are not permitted to grow up. And um, I don't know how, the veracity of this statement, but there is a vague statement of if they grow up, they are... Uh, gotten rid of and so some people say you know Peter Pan gets rid of them uh, in the most gruesome sort of way or they become pirates I'm not sure Um, there's been a lot of breakdown of this story but think about this okay so um, and by the way there is a reason why there are no girls in Neverland and Peter Pan says it because they're far too clever to fall out of their pram so the only reason why there are only lost boys is because uh, only the boys are foolish enough to fall out of their pram. So this idea of perpetual adolescence. Um, remember when Wendy um, meets the lost boys? You remember that? Do you do you guys recall the movie? I, it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, with, Dustin <laughs> with Dustin Hoffman, I love that movie. That was a good movie. Now, what what exactly? What kind of role did Wendy take? She's supposed to be yes, she actually becomes almost the leader instantly. the 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 boys there, the Lost Boys, look to her to be in charge, right? They want comfort. They want stories, right? And there's this really significant and very interesting situation that occurs in the, um, definitely, I think it does happen in the play. It happens in the cartoon, and it's depicted here. Yeah, she offers to give him a kiss. Now, that's really significant. Because Peter Pan's reaction is also significant. What does he do? He has no idea. He's taken aback. He's, oh. He's like, okay, give it to me. Right? He, he holds out his hand. I, I, I'll, I'll take a kiss. And then when she tries to kiss him, 
he's just like, okay, this is bizarre. Why are you trying to smash your face up against my face? Right? Um, there's something very significant here about, and I'm going to say specifically males. Um, if you ever, and you guys are, most of us here are already married, but and we don't have any teens here. Um, if you are a woman and you marry an adolescent man, the reason why he married you is because he wants you to be his mother. <laughs> That's sick. <laughs> I'm not going down a Sigmund Freud tunnel there, but it is because it is it's the situation with the Lost Boys and Peter Pan. And in a world where we have perpetual adolescence, um, we struggle with men who re reject responsibility and women who are deeply dissatisfied in their relationships because they are looking for a man, not a son, not a, a boy, right? So um, why is this? <laughs> Once there was a world without teenagers. So if you're reading the book, uh, I can't remember what chapter that was in. Uh, that line pops out to me. I love that line, right? Uh, so, say what? Chapter seven. Yes, chapter seven. Okay, so hi, please read this book. Please read this book. Um, some of you might be thinking to yourself, that, that must have been a wonderful world, uh, a world without teenagers. I'm going to tell you something. People ask me because I teach teenagers. Uh, man, you must love kids. You must love teenagers. I say, no, I don't love teenagers. I don't like teenagers. I don't like the way they dress. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like their culture. But I like them as people. And I like what I see. What I, can, I like to see what they can become. I like their potential. I don't like the music they like. Like, there's sometimes overlap, but it's usually with the kids who like older music. Right? I don't know half of the influencers that they know about. Like, I don't admire teen culture. I don't. I don't have to. You don't have to like teen culture in order to teach teenagers. Um, the, this quote is from a lady named Diana West, and I haven't read this book, Death of the Grown-Up. Um, but she points out that until recently, this classification of teenager didn't exist. And then we tacked on to teenager preteen, right? Like, you've heard the term. Tell me, what does this term mean? Kids will be kids. <coughs> yes, it's a justification for foolish and bad behavior, right? Kids will be kids. Oh, they, they drove by your house and blew up your mailbox? Kids will be kids, right? Um, it is an excuse. So in your mind, let's, let's, let's define teenager. Throw out some definitions of teenager, if you will. Besides the obvious? I'm asking for the obvious. Oh, 13 to 19, <laughs> the age is 13. 13 to 20, 13 to 19? Through 19 to 20. How's that? Someone whose age is in the teen years. 
the teen years. Okay, so well, can't we do 11? Is 11 a teen year? Pre-teen. It's a pre-teen. Hmm. It's true. Okay, so it's, it's defined by the word teen in the number. If we won't follow that logic. What else? What is a teenager? What is it? Okay, numerically. They are getting to the age of transitioning from a child to an adult. Okay. What should be transitioning from a child? How long does that take? <laughs> All the teenage <laughs> so we need to move the teenage term up a little farther to maybe 41. All right, I got one more year. Big changes, your, your interests change. You're probably not playing make-believe anymore. So now today they are online. Um, I love this picture. This is obviously not a teenage woman. <laughs> Okay, so um, what their interests are, their age, right? Attitude, what's the defined teenage mentality, if that's even possible? They know better. Okay, they, they're reaching the stage to where they're seeking more independence, uh, and they, they might be bucking authority, right? Kind of selfish. Okay, definitely in the selfie, we're in the selfie world. There is... Uh, a focus on self, which I would argue uh, self-centered bad, but helping them if, if they're if they're in a in a right mindset, self-awareness is good. So so there is a development of self-awareness that that they need help developing. Otherwise, it's just self-centeredness, right? But um, yeah, there is mostly an awareness of self. Um, so. <clears throat> As pointed out, we, we've run into this issue, culturally speaking. Um, one where the teenage years have been defined as being the best years. And we've tacked on preteen, right? So uh, there's a great movie, Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, it's a movie for weird people like me, but it's hilarious, right? And if you do know this movie, who's Uncle Rico? Go pick yourself a quesadilla. Go. <laughs> quesadilla. <laughs> right? Who's Uncle Rico? Man, if coach just put me in, I could throw their football. I'd have thrown that we would have won state. Right? He's living. He's stuck. I'm I'm glad we are cultured here in Milton. Um, <laughs> Uncle Rico is attempting to relive what he considers his best years and even the turning point of his very existence. Right? He lives in a uh, RV. In a fantasy that didn't happen also. Yes. Yeah. Coach didn't put him in. Coach didn't put him in. He thinks that he could, if Coach had just put him in, he would have gone pro. He would have been this, that, and the other. Right? Um, what is funny is if you look, and, and I was, I can't remember who I was talking to. Maybe it was you, Mike. Um, if you look at a lot of television, right, we see, we've seen a shift of the age of the hero 
going down to being within between the ages of teen to 20s. Right, the hero is young. Where how old was Indiana Jones? He was like thirty-five or forty. He was a professor. He was a professor, right? He had PhD. Right, and then they released uh, that abomination of a movie, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Who was the hero? His, his son. Shia LaBeouf, right? And he was supposed to be early twenties. Right, you you start looking you start looking at a lot of what is actually geared towards kids, um, teens, and you start seeing an admiration of, uh, or, or a built, a, a, a worship of the teenage years. Uh, you are, you are the special. You can do anything as a teenager preteen. So <clears throat> in contrast to that, which seems to be interestingly uh, limited to our culture in the West currently, and this time, you go back through history, that doesn't exist. Teenagers don't exist in the early 20th century. In fact, most cultures worldwide had some form of rite of passage, some incredibly brutal, some more symbolic. But it was a point in which a male or a female were moved from one part of the culture, society, into another. And it, was, it wasn't this smear of 10, 15 years. It was a moment, isolated. So like you got these, you got these two individuals right here. These are Maasai boys. Maasai. So I actually got to meet, not, not one of these kids, but a Maasai boy uh, going through this. Now there's some there have been changes from the past. Um, once upon a time, these boys would ha uh, have to go fight a lion and bring back its mane. Um, they don't do that anymore. But the way it was explained to me, <clears throat> and, and I was in Kenya, um, the, the guys, they, they, they called me over because I had to leave the boma, which was this little cluster of, uh, of uh, huts, because these guys can't go into any bomas. Um, and then go out a ways, and they don't really ever speak to women when they're in this phase. Um, and they they didn't speak English, but the guy that was with me, he was like, these you know these guys are going through their their rite of passage, and they have to go out. They keep uh, a certain amount of cattle. Uh, what I was told, what the guy told me, they they live on milk and blood. They don't drink water. Of course, it's a desert. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And uh, they go through this a lot of time, and then they come back to the village, having demonstrated their ability, their skill. They go through ritualistic circumcision, where they are not allowed to show any sign of pain. Right? It's tough. I'm not saying this is good or great or what we should bring into the West, but you have throughout time cultures who would take their children and say, today you are a child, and then you go through the rite of passage, and then you say, now you are a man. These, these boys are anywhere between the age of like, I think the, the, the segment is like 10 to 15. 
and they're broken down into three classes for the males specifically. You're a child, then you're a warrior, then you're an elder. And you, there are times when you are given, you're a child, okay, you do child things. Now you're a man or you're a warrior, you do warrior things. And now that you're an elder, you do elder things. You do not look back. You know your place and you earn your place. Um, what we see is, uh, and, I, and I can, I'll speak to this personally, um, is an inability to decide when it is I have to be an adult. What does it even mean, right, to grow up? So I would say I suffer from delayed adolescence. I got married at 30. Like, that's late. And that's not unusual for millennials. In fact, millennials are notorious for not even ever leaving the home and staying single. Right? And so we're struggling in our society with this, this perpetual adolescence. And, and, and we're sitting here scratching our heads. Why? Look at our culture. Look at all the music, all the movies. Look at the, 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 uh, the, the teenage book classification. When did, when did that come about? Mary Jean, do you know, are you aware as a, as a librarian, are you aware when you first started seeing teen level books, like explicitly saying in the ca categorized as teen? Well, you think. <laughs> uh, you know, it's an incredibly large, YA is an incredibly large group of books. When I started at Southside, I would have fiction, non-fiction, mm -hmm. and there wouldn't be a lot of not fiction, not fiction. Easy fiction. What? I, I, I could, she said easy. Fiction, not fiction, an easy book. I could hear what you say. Yeah. Oh, listen, you say. So you have books for little children, you mm -hmm. have middle grade fiction, and it gets a little more real. <coughs> Yeah. Southside, every sixth grade class read The Hunger Games. So, you know, that's pretty, pretty. That's pretty, that's a lot for a sixth grader. I read Curious George. Mark the Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's interesting it, because when you do look at the Hunger Games or the Maze Runner, I know those are the two big ones that a lot of my kids read, or even Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter goes all the way down to fourth grade, and that's pretty Wow. Well, you know, The Giver is, is recommended for third and fourth grade, and the concept of the Giver is Mm hmm. So this is interesting. We have. We have, we have a culture that is, is actually messaging our youth. Adults have failed. 
You aren't, you got to do it yourself. But you can't even clean up your own room. That's right? <laughs> it's like, you want to save the world, right? So, uh, uh, Mike mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier. He's got that book, 12 Rules for Life. And rule number one is make up your own bed. Right? And, and he's saying this, not, not that if you don't make your bed, that you're a bad person, but this idea of you don't expect to be able to fix the world if you do not have the ability to fix the structures within your own life. And usually a kid doesn't. Right? And so... And so this perpetual adolescence is youth is the solution. Youth is the most valuable part of your life. And that's what we worship, we love, and we laud, and we maintain and hold on to. And so we wonder why we never grow up. Millennials grew up with the Toys R Us jingle. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, right? Exactly. A million was all about that and so we don't have in the west a rite of passage we worship youth yes right like we we are and, and that's not necessarily new in the the aesthetics part but it at, but at this point even it's the mentality like listening to somebody who who's in their 40s and 50s speak like a teenager is deeply offensive to me <laughs> i guess it, uh, it's like uh, please it's not good at all it's not, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> it's not good at all. I don't word good. So um, this is an interesting thing the book points out. I, I, I title this the emergence map. The emergence of the, the thing called a teenager. All right, so some of you may remember in the 50s. Let's twist again like we did last summer. When did that song come out? 5984. I don't know. I wasn't alive in 59. Um, but, but this idea came out in the 50s. Um, you know, once upon a time, you, when you were a young adult, you dressed like an adult, you spoke like an adult, you worked like an adult. Uh, maybe, yeah, you went to school, but your culture was that of the adults. And then the book points out in 1950, there was a new dance called the twist. So once upon a time when you went, this is 1960. 60s, excuse me, uh, the song about the twist came out. I don't know if when the, twist. the actual twist came out. Okay. The song. Oh, the song before that, I'm sure the twist existed, right? Yeah, there was twist in the night away. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's the song. So, so here we go. Right before, if you went to a dance, right, you, the waltz, the foxtrot, uh, whatever the adults did, the kids did. And they point out in the book that at this point, when this dance came along, the twist, the parents stood back because the, the dance was specifically catered to the kids. Right? Uh, he points out the transportation, right? Transportation independence. As the automobile became more widespread, as families became wealthier, right? 
as we, you know, after, after the Great Depression, World War II, right, America was booming, financially speaking, and more and more people were getting more and more money. And this idea of being able to afford a vehicle, which was unheard of before then for a lot of people, was now a reality. And so now the kid could borrow the car and get a job. And what does a job give a kid? Independence, financially speaking. So before, a kid went to work to help mom and dad pay for food, clothing, and all that good stuff. But as families didn't really need that extra income, they would say, all right, Timmy, all right, Susie, you want to do that, you get a job. And they would go work at the burger place, they would make some cash, and then cash allowed them to spend it. But on what? And in a good capitalistic society, the market responds. If there is a desire, somebody out there is going to come up with a market, right? And so new things were created, specifically catered to now what we call teenagers that had jobs, that had transportational independence, and had financial independence. You create a subsection of person. That is the emergence of what we call teens. And now we have teen culture, music, movies, magazines, and fashion. Because isn't there a difference between the way like a teenager dresses and an adult dresses? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Depends on where you are. But, but there is. Um, so <clears throat> the perfect storm arises when we have uh, or actually the perfect storm um, that we live in. And that is supplemented by the information age, um, is fueling the issues we have today. Uh, and we're at, I'm gonna go on this slide and then we'll be done and I'll finish it up uh, the week after next because we'll, we'll, we're gonna have, we're gonna be blowing up birds next uh, week, weekend, next Sunday. <laughs> Not really, we're gonna fireworks, fireworks. Um, so there are three factors that have great consequences for the issue that we have of perpetual adolescence, okay? These are very important factors. And these factors are, uh, at least the very first one is, is um, exacerbated by our technology. Kids are exposed to romance, graphic sexuality and gratuitous violence at a very young age. Alarmingly young. Remember yesterday we talked about <clears throat> what a uh, smartphone is. It is not a phone. We talked about thinking about things um, not as they are, or experiencing things, not simply as they are physically speaking, but as they are philosophically speaking. If you don't understand things on a philosophical level, you can get blindsided from, by some pretty insane things. Because that's how we usually experience the world. 
And so you have children at incredibly young ages that are handed an iPad or an iPhone, right? And they don't even have to be looking for anything because this is the thing you can expect. They might not be looking for anything online, but there are lots of things online looking for their little eyes. That's a promise. That is, that is, an, that is a fact. And so <clears throat> they begin at a very young age experiencing things that are destroying their innocence. Now, we're talking about this on the front end of adolescence, right? Mike talked about um, being able to be an open book and having your kid talk to you about anything. You should be 100% honest with your kid. But I say this, you should be true, but there is different levels of telling your kid the truth. There is low definition truth and high definition with full resolution 4K truth. When my daughter was asking me about uh, my dog, my dog died last year, right? Right? I, she, <laughs> wow, thanks, Josh. <laughs> It hurt. It cut me deep, man. Was, Ty was a good pup. I was gonna die. Dog gonna die right away. It's gonna die. I'm dead. Your mom's gonna die. Yeah. See, that's a little too much. My daughter's three years old, and and I, I I'm not. I you know I, I told her you know she Ty would he's old. He would go in and out of the doggy door in the garage. She would see him wandering around the yard, and when he died, I I told her, Hey, Nora, Ty's Ty's gone. Where'd he go? Well, he died. What does that mean? Well, he's not around anymore. Right? That's at three. And it stopped there. And she went through a large part of the year saying nothing about Ty. And then just this year, she said, where's Ty? I'm like, well, he's dead. Is Ty in heaven? I'm like, I'd like to think that all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> uh, so this is interesting, right? Um, she has questions. I'm not going to tell her the dog went to the farm, right? I'm going to tell her, listen, here is a reality. But I'm going to tell it in, in a way that is age appropriate. She announced in class on Wednesday night that he was indeed in heaven. And so <laughs> I have to say that I'm not fully responsible for I'm everything sorry. my daughter says, but I might be responsible <laughs> for that. <laughs> my dog's in heaven. Oh my goodness. I did not know that. Dinosaurs in heaven. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a deep theological question here. So, um, young people are delaying marriage and its subsequent responsibilities. I will tell you as a man that I did not understand 
responsibility or adulthood until I was married. I had concepts of responsibility. You know, I worked, I had a job, right? I had graduated college, so I'd seen it through, right? I had done things in my life that required me to be responsible, required me to um, work, but I had never done anything that required me to not focus only on me to like an extraordinary degree. Delayed marriage. Now this is interesting. <clears throat> In the book, they get into this issue, and I can't remember the name of the, uh, the uh, individual. Uh, here we go. Dr. Mark uh, Regneris. What a name. Uh, I think I pronounced that wrong. <clears throat> um, uh, in one of his uh, essays or books, um, I don't see where they, they reference the excerpt, um, but talks about <clears throat> this idea of the economy of sex linked to the degradation of sexual ethics in our country. And this is what he said, right? For the longest time, or at the very least, let's just back up. We know people did bad things and practiced uh, all kinds of things before. But at least for the longest time, there was a sexual ethic that was held up that you should not have sex before you get married. And so what is interesting in this, um, he points out that in this idea of the economy of sex, if a male wanted to have sex with somebody, she said, give me the ring. Which required a male, typically speaking, to engage with a father who's going to say, okay, well, how are you going to take care of my daughter? Which requires the male to be able to demonstrate the ability to work, provide, and care for this woman. Now, of course, this is a very clinical breakdown of this situation. But do you see the problem here? You're trying to train a kid as a Christian. Do not have sex outside of marriage. It's a biblical concept. It is taught to us because within the God made marriage for a reason. And within the bounds of marriage is when sexuality becomes a good thing. But when that is delayed, and you have young, specifically young males, right, under the heavy influence of testosterone, you're going to run into some issues because now, instead of getting married, what are kids doing for a very long time? They're dating. And how do you remain pure when you're dating? Well, that's the, that's, guys, when I was in college, that was, in high school, that was the fundamental question for every young man. Well, I got my girlfriend, I want to remain pure. Well, Paul even says that if you're burning with lust, marry her. But what we want to do is we want to say, well, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not financially ready. You got to graduate college. People don't like to hear this. I'm going to kick back. 
I don't care if you're graduated from college or not. Paul says it is better to marry than to burn with lust. And whenever we live in a culture whose defining dating as... I, I asked my kids this in school when we run across this discussion in, in, in Bible. So if you're watching a television show with high school or college kids, what is expected that they are doing? Even if it doesn't show it, what is it? You tell me. What's implied? What's expected? What are these kids doing? Yes. That is implied almost every time. Remember, we make culture, but culture works on us. And so, you're a guy, you're a girl, you're in love, you're dating for four years. And you are trying so hard to be pure. But you do, we do not live in a culture with courtship in which there is a chaperone. By the time you're in college, you're already living outside of the home. If you don't see that as a recipe for disaster, I do not know where you're living. And it's right upon too. Because if you don't, you're a loser. Yes! Only a loser couldn't get a girl or a guy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. David just said screech a minute ago. Screech or screech or say by the bell, right? So, okay, when we delay marriage, going back to the very important idea of of, of growing up, when we delay marriage like I did into our late 20s, late or early 30s, or so on and so forth, you are delaying that which is a force to help you grow up, specifically males. Because I think it's observable that females tend to be more mature earlier on. And also that females typically, and this is an interesting topic I'm not going to get into, but on average, <clears throat> an older guy will marry a younger woman. Right? So we're, we're having some issues, and, and I'm leaning heavily into the male side of things. One, because I am a male. This is something I'm more acquainted with. But... We're asking ourselves, why aren't these guys growing up? They don't have to. They literally don't have to. Um, and then fundamental moral concepts of sin, moral responsibility, and virtue have been utterly abandoned. Right? We don't want to talk about bad people. Right? I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. I don't think everybody's good. I don't think anybody's good. And I'm saying that based on Jesus. I don't think that the average person, I don't think anybody is good. Now, then we have to define good, right? I might be good compared to Adolf Hitler. But... <clears throat> We have lowered the bar for what good is so low 
then you can say, well, you know, that guy's a pretty good guy, even though you know that he is a drunk or he is, you know, we define good by, oh, I've never really hurt anybody. I actually have a perfect example of that with my sister. I was actually discussing this class with her last weekend. And I was talking about how, and my dad was sitting there, and I was like, you know, daddy's time, the men and women didn't have sex before marriage, have babies out, outside of marriage near as much as they do now because you know they weren't they weren't supposed to and um she argued with me that she 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 got stressed out by the conversation because her and her husband lived together for about a year before they got married and she said that she did not want to teach her two boys that that was wrong and that she felt like in my dad's time there was a lot of abuse that happened and all that because people got married without knowing each other first and so even though she knows better yeah you know my sister and her husband are raising their two two boys and they're good people and they don't lie cheat you know steal all that stuff and so she wants to ignore that yeah. Because she doesn't want to look at it and say, oh, I did wrong. She doesn't want to teach them that she did wrong. Yeah. Because in today's society, she is much better. Yeah. Well, here's what's interesting. Um, statistically speaking, if you live with a person before you're married, you're going to separate. Yeah. And let's be real. The, the successful marriages have not improved with our ability to get to know each other right. better. Getting to know each other better makes you want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> but it is the legal bond that keeps you together, right? So, so, so here is that. That's an excellent. That's that's excellent to point out, right? Um, it is. We're building fires in our house and wondering why our houses are burning down. Uh, these ideas of um, sin. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to define sin by what's acceptable, culturally speaking. And when I do that, it makes me feel good about myself because let's be real. I don't want to feel like a loser. I don't want to feel like a bad person. But what does Paul tell Timothy? Here's a trustworthy saying. Jesus died for the ungodly, of which I am the chief, or I am the worst. Paul said that, right? And he's saying it to Timothy, not, be, not talking about himself alone, but he's saying, Timothy, I want, you to, I want you to think like this. Rejoice in how worthy, uh, rejoice in how much love has been, stowed, been bestowed upon you, not because you are worthy, but because you are loved. We want to feel worthy, but the reality is, if we were worthy, then we do not need Jesus. So, moral responsibility. This need to do what is right. One of the things that I heard about Tom Beatty, was this this and this is you know I, I I knew him a little bit from North Boulevard when me and my wife went there but this was consistently said about him 
if you dropped him in the middle of nowhere, the first question he would ask is, you know, what's the right thing to do in this situation? That is not the question that we uh, typically ask ourselves now. We are typically people who are more pragmatic than, we are people who are of pragmatism instead of people who are of principle. Being a person of principle means you will do something that is not always beneficial to you and yours, but you will do it because it's the right thing to do. Being a person who is practical or pragmatic means you will do whatever you need to do at any point in time to benefit you and yours. We ask ourselves why we fail, why we are uh, perpetually adolescents, because we don't take our responsibility. I'm going to close with this. I want to read you a poem real quick. Read me a poem. This is, a poem. This is one that I've heard uh, Zig Ziglar <laughs> recite one time. He didn't write it. But. The bride, white of hair, is stooped over a cane. Her, footsto- her footsteps uncertainly guiding. While down the opposite aisle, with a wan, toothless smile, the bridegroom in a wheelchair come riding. Now who is this elderly couple thus wed? Well, you'll find it when you've closely explored it. That here is this rare, most conservative pair who waited till they could afford it. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of truth in that of waiting to change to, to, if you're gonna be, I'll be a better person, I'll, you know what I mean? I'll I'll wait to get married when I can afford it. Wait till I grow up. You can't, you waste your life waiting yeah. I'm not doing what you're supposed to. Yeah. So, <clears throat> this is uh, from a book, The Road to Character. Uh, get this, a New York Times columnist, David Brooks, he wrote this. He says, sin is a necessary piece of our mental furniture because it reminds us that life is a moral affair. When modern culture tries to replace sin with ideas like error or insensitivity or tries to banish words like virtue, character, evil, and vice altogether, that doesn't make life any less moral. It just means we have obscured the inescapable moral core of life with a shallow language. It just means we think and talk about these choices less clearly and thus become increasingly blind to the moral stakes of everyday life. Just because we stop talking about people being evil, about things being evil, about sin, doesn't mean those ideas go away. It just means we start losing our grasp of what is clearly right and wrong, especially if we are believers. And we are adding to this issue of perpetual adolescence. We are not exhorting our children to virtue. And we will talk about virtue being the antidote to adolescence next time we meet.